Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, and we're going to begin in verse 34. Matthew 22, 34, and as you're turning here in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew 22, 34, I want to welcome the rest of our church family as they are worshiping in the Family Life Center and uh, those who are also tuning in online as we welcome you into this common time of study as we open God's Word. Uh, Listen to these words from Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. Let's offer a word of prayer now. Most loving God, even as we gather now in prayer, we recognize the potential of this moment. We recognize the call of your spirit to be attentive to a kind of transformation of mind and heart that you desire from us. But we also recognize, God, that even right now there are, um, there are families in Sutherland, Texas, who are anguished one week after such a tragedy as more than 26 lost their lives. And you have given us the gift of lamentation. You have given us permission to lament, to struggle, to anguish, to not move to easy answers, but to feel the the weight of such loss, and that's what we do right now, God. Even now as your worshipers gather and we sing and we, and we think and feel, we, we cannot move through this time together and ignore, ignore the injury, the, the pain of soul being felt by sisters and brothers uh, in another church. We pray today for lives to be rebuilt. We pray for family members who lost um, children and adults to somehow cling to whatever faith they may have left. 
will you show them today why you can still be trusted? Will you show them today and show us today how you can be trusted? Lord, be with us here and be with your worshipers as they gather in places all over your world and speak to us so that when we leave this place, we are changed to the degree that we are able to make a better world, more reflective of the one you created in the first place. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of all life. Amen. Amen. Today, we continue in a new series, uh, Simpo Reformanda, or as my friend and professor corrected my pronunciation last week, Semper Reformanda. Okay, you got to put the right emphasis on the correct syllable. So, Semper Reformanda. And today we're talking about Christ's ever-reforming church. But before we get into the topic of study today, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. There is a writer, a thinker, a theologian who I admire. Her name is Phyllis Tickle, and she wrote a book entitled uh, The Great Emergence. You may want, if you're looking for a new book, to pick up The Great Emergence. It attempts to wrap words around this thing that's happening in this 21st century. This cultural, social upheaval, this shifting of the winds that is happening all around us as the church attempts to navigate those winds and clean off the lens through which we see and interpret the changing world around us. And much of the, the data that I'll share today and even some next week come not only from her work but many others that I'll mention along the way. But before we get there, I need to tell you about a yard sale. How's that for a segue? So there was, years ago, Laura and the boys and I were moving from one city to another city. This was before we came to this city. Years ago, we moved from one city to the next, and we decided to throw a yard sale, a garage sale, a rummage sell, whatever you call it. You don't want to take the same junk you've been living with into your new life. So we decided to clear it out. What we decided to do was throw this yard sale, and it was massively successful. I mean, it was so successful, this rummage sale, that when we were prepared, we put it in the newspaper, people came knocking on our door the night before. Are you, are you one of those people? It, they came to my door and they said, hey, we saw your ad in the paper. Notice you're going to have rummage sale. Do you mind if we take a look at your stuff ahead of time? To which I replied, Jeopardy is on. Take a hike. <laughs> but the next day, they came back, as did so many others, and man, we made a killing. It was, it was amazing. We sold almost everything. It was so successful that about midway through, we started going inside and pulling out things we had never intended to sell. I mean, we were, I was pulling out like lamps that were plugged in still to the, to the wall, bedding that was like on our bed, you know. And at one point, I realized that we may have crossed the line or gone a little too far. Um, when I came outside and Laura said, Sean, stop. These are your kids. <laughs> they took the stickers off their heads, you know. But I tell you about that rummage sale to tell you this. 
Mark Dyer is an Episcopal priest, a bishop, who once said, if you want to understand this, oh, this swirling dervish of a world in which we, we are living, this strange and unfamiliar land in which we are sojourning, if you want to understand what the church is facing right now, you have to first understand that just about every 500 years or so, the church gets together and throws a big rummage sale. And every 500 years or so, it throws a rummage sale and it decides what to get rid of, what parts of the church and its system and its structure are no longer useful, no longer helpful, and, and what will they retain and hang on to for the years that are to follow. This, this happens, and, and he said this, and he's absolutely true. It's absolutely right. If you go back about 500 years from right now, you hit uh, the Great Reformation. We talked about the Great Reformation last year or last week a little bit. But if you go back 500 years before the Great Reformation, you hit the Great Schism. The Great Schism that divide between Christianity in the East and Christianity in the West. If you take, which was a cataclysmic, seismic shift in the way we did theology and the way we functioned as a church. But if you go 500 years back before the Great Schism, you hit uh, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, a council in which some of the most uh, important theological doctrines that you and I hold today were decided. Doctrines like, what was Jesus? Was he one person with two natures or two natures with one person? Where did he come from? At the Council of Chalcedon, the way we thought of Christianity shifted forever. That was also the era in which the Roman Empire, which had become Christian, now collapsed. It was also the era of Gregory the Great, the Pope of the Great Reforms, who brought spirituality back into the system. But if you were to not stop there, and go 500 years, once again, another click backward, you reach the turn of the era. A, a, a period of time that some are calling the Great Transformation. This convergence of, of philosophies and theologies and cultures and ethnicities all in the first century. Even the calendar changes, right? From B.C. to A.D. And if you stop long enough to pay attention to our journey from the first century forward... Mark is right, Mark Dyer is right. About every 500 years, we kind of throw a rummage sale. We go through a shift and we ask ourselves, what do we need to keep and what needs to be jettisoned? But as, as Tickle would say, if, if there was a rabbi in the congregation this morning, he would at this point stand up and say, hang on, this is all totally true. However, this is not just a Christian phenomenon, this every 500-year rummage sale where you got to rethink everything. This is also true in Judaism. This is a Judeo-Christian uh, experience because if you go 500 years back before the Great Transformation, before year number one, right, you hit the time of the Babylonian captivity, which is the end of First Temple Judaism and a new experience like they had never seen. But if you don't stop there and go 500 years again, back before the Babylonian captivity, you hit the Davidic dynasty, the rise of King David. And for the first time, leaving the time of the, the period of judges and moving to a unified kingdom and with his son Solomon building the first temple, everything changes. But if we were to stop right there and there were an iman in the, in the congregation this morning, uh, Tickle points out that the iman would step up and say, hang on, this is not just a Judeo-Christian experience, but also in Islam. 
we experience about every 500 years a shift, a reform, a kind of reformation. And if you begin dating around the mid part of the 7th century and move forward every 500 years, something happens and there's a major rethink, which is underway even now with extremes on each end of that world religion. He, he would say, this is not a Judeo-Christian experience, this is an Abrahamic faith experience. But regardless of how you slice it, here's how it all shakes down. Every 500 years we have a rummage sale, but it's not because we just wanna have a rummage sale. Hmm. We have it because the culture around us, the context in which the church has been doing, the chur- doing church, something happens globally that shifts the needle. And, and in a culture that is shifting, changing with social, global, economic, political winds that shift, the church has always, throughout the ages, had to respond to the shifting winds and become the church once again, but in a brand new way. Can I just walk you forward, back to the future from where I just took you? So let's start with Davidic dynasty. At the Davidic dynasty, do you realize the social, cultural, worldwide event going on They moved from the time of judges to one centralized way of doing faith, one united kingdom. Do you realize what a cataclysmic shift that was in the mind, heart, and practice of the people of faith? During an era when the judges, different locales had their own judges who would execute justice and and there would be the practice of religion in different vicinities, but now with one temple. There's one unified way and the temple means everything. And now we begin to centralize our thoughts about God and each other in community because if God has a house, it's there in Jerusalem in the temple that we have built. And now even our spirituality changes. Temple piety, praying, giving alms, fasting, making sacrifices. The sacrificial system that you and I know and reflect back on begins during first temple Judaism, during this time of the Davidic dynasty, right? During Solomon's reign. But what happens? That reigns about 500 years until the Babylonians invade and sack the city. The Babylonians come and invade the city. They sack the city of Jerusalem and they burn the temple down. Hang on, temple, the central place where we define faith. This is how we did the practice of our religion and now it's gone, it's smoldering in ruins. And now what must we do? How must we live? See, the world around begins to shift and it causes them to shift their theology and shift the way they practice their theology, right? And so you hear things in our Psalter. Psalm 37 may be one of the most gut-wrenching psalms in all the Psalter in which it's written during a time of exile because they've now been taken away from Jerusalem. There is no temple. And there in 37, the psalmist says, There by the rivers of Babylon, we hung up our harps, the instrument that we use to worship. We hung them up because how do you worship? Our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? See, you hear the resignation. Oh, it's all collapsed. I don't recognize the world around me anymore. But then in the same era, We hear the prophets rise up and say, you are in exile, yes. But the word of the Lord says, 
build houses and live in them. Plant vineyards and eat of its produce. Marry others and have children. And even in exile, you will discover the nearness of the God who has not forgotten you. Watch what happens. The world around them changes, so suddenly they have to change the way they think about God. Suddenly this is no longer a God who has one address and one locale, but this is a God who has followed us into exile. Are you kidding me? That means I don't have to give up my faith. And then we see the rise of synagogues. Right, The rise of gatherings and outcroppings where we, we don't need brick and mortar. We gather in homes, living rooms. Right. Well, that's during the Babylonian captivity. 500 years pass and the resurrection of Christ has happened. And the followers of that rabbi, that carpenter's son, now are so overwhelmed by this cataclysmic event that they change everything about their lives. They say, no, he is everything he was dead, we saw him crucified, and now he's alive. And he said that he is coming back, so we are ready. And to a first century audience, expecting him to come back by Thursday, they had to learn the world has shifted. He's not back yet. You cannot possibly fathom the depths of such despair. He said he was coming back. He said, some of you will not even see death before our return. I'm coming back. And they had bags packed, ready to follow him as the eastern sky breaks open. But he didn't come. The world around them shifted. Do you know what they then had to do? They had to organize. They had to elect leaders. They had to ordain deacons. They began to, well to write down stories that used to be only told by mouth. Hey, remember that time we were walking down the village and Jesus was walking and this woman touched the hem of his garment and she was made well. Remember that time that he was walking out on the water and we thought it was a ghost, but it was him. And he said, come out. And I came out and I sang, but I kept my eyes on him and he brought me back up. Hey, remember that time we had that big picnic and there was a bunch of people and we didn't have enough food and he multiplied the fishes and the loaves. Remember all that? Well, all these stories Remember, remember when we went to the wedding? Remember that time with the wedding and there was wine, but everybody drank all the wine. And so then he turned the water into Welch's grape juice. Remember? That was great. And, and, and all these stories that they were telling by word of mouth, now they had to write down because the ones who started telling those stories were dead. They're dying. So they had to throw a rummage sale. And had to find a way to continue forward. And they did. They wrote them down. They gathered. They organized. And under great persecution through the first three centuries, they practiced their faith even at the threat of death itself. Until in the fourth century, the emperor becomes a Christian. And the emperor makes Christianity the, the, the religion of the empire. And suddenly it was no longer Difficult to be a Christian, you weren't only not going to be persecuted, but in many ways it became easy, comfortable, convenient, even lucrative. You couldn't run for office unless you were a Christian. You couldn't own certain property unless you were a Christian. You, there was a shift in the world, not always for the best. And the church had to decide what to do, especially at Mark number 500 when the fall of Rome transpires and the empire that had created the infrastructure for the church to be uh, so darn easy was now collapsing. 
how would they survive and the rise of Gregory the Great, uh, the Pope who established reforms and brought back the monastic orders and established the spirituality that would continue to pump life into the church through the dark ages until the 11th century. The Byzantines invade the East, and the Byzantine Empire now in the East, and there's this cataclysmic shift between Christianity in the East and the Christianity in the West. Christianity in the East, well, now they had to answer to an empire, but not in the West. In the East, they spoke Greek. In the West, they spoke Latin. In the East, they used leavened bread. In the West, they used unleavened bread. In the East, the, the person who had the authority was the patriarch of Constantinople, but in the West, it was the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And so they could not agree, and they, they excommunicated each other. And the great schism, and the church would have to find a way to live again. And in the West, they did. In the West, throughout Europe, now the Roman Catholic Church grew and flourished and gained all kinds of power and authority and the ultimate authority that ultimately became corrupt was the corruption of the papacy which Martin Luther 500 years later said we got to do something about this. Don't forget that every time the church has shifted it is because the world around them has so shifted that it resulted in the church being compelled to adapt, to move, to groove, to morph in such a way that they live past the shift. And Europe in the mid-16, early 16th century was already a powder keg. Last week we heard Martin Luther tell us, didn't we? About how, well, it was like someone had poured gasoline all over Europe and Martin Luther's match lit a, lit a fire that ignited the continent and suddenly... There is enlightenment and there is uh, the nation state and capitalism and a new kind of economy and the power of the individual. So the church had a brand new way of being the church. Are you following me? Shum on. Why does this matter? Not because you needed a history lesson today. It matters because here we are again. 500 years later, something is happening. And the world around us has shifted. If my grandfather, who was born in 1913 and who we buried in the early 1990s, if my grandfather could live 24 hours in today's world, he would not believe where we have come. He could not begin to fathom the world in which we live. This is a world that many are referring to as the great emergence there is emerging all around us with or without our permission a kind of way to exist and they didn't ask the church's permission and that great emergence comes with all kinds of contours and dynamics the likes of which we won't fully understand for another hundred years but the church has to respond to it i mean we live right now in the age in which information is so readily accessible, you can know anything you want right now. You can know it all. You can. I mean, you can know everything. It doesn't mean you know what to do with what you know, but you can know it. 
The other day, uh, we've been about a week, uh, Jackson had lost his phone, or broken his phone, so he had no telephone, which meant no way to communicate. And so I was in one town, out of the town a little bit, and he was in another place, and all of a sudden on my phone, there pops up this kind of thing through one of the apps that said, hey, Dad, this is Jackson. Uh, you don't recognize this phone number or this app, but it's me. Just want to let you know, la, 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 la. He had found a way to communicate with me, even though the typical normal way that we communicate by phone was not available to us. That happened for two reasons. One, he's smarter than his dad. <laughs> and two, because you can do that. We can have all the information we want. Last week when the tragedy in Sutherland took place, we could know it right away. As soon as somebody tweets it or posts it, we can know it right away. We can know about this much information about it, but we can know it right away. But here's our problem. In the midst of knowing just this much information, because we have become accustomed to 24-hour news cycles about it, we will keep talking about just this much until we either find the missing information or make it up ourselves. What does the church say about that? What is the church going to do about that? There are some days that I long for the days when something unfortunate happened and on the TV they said, hey, this thing has happened. Uh, as we gather information, we'll let you know. Tune in at 11. But we're not there anymore. What does the church have to say about What does the church have to say about the fact that we're living in exponential times, which means we're preparing children for jobs that don't even exist yet? Not only that, but the average tech student who goes into a technical institute, uh, by the time they go in as freshmen, by the time they're juniors, all the technological information they gathered as freshmen is obsolete by their junior year. What does the church say about that? What are we to do and how are we to live in the midst of that kind of world? Technologically, do you know there is a computer right now that is capable of over 124 petaflops? Do you know what a petaflop is? I didn't know what a petaflop was before. A petaflop is the computer's capacity to make a quadrillion decisions accurately in a second. This computer can make 124 quadrillion decisions in a second accurately. That's more decisions than Glenn Crossway makes in like a week. What does the church say about that? But perhaps the most poignant, the most relative to what we're doing here is that now we are living in this great emergence. We are living at a time where most agree it is what is referred to as a post-Christian era. A post-Christian era. Now don't be alarmed by that word. Don't be alarmed by that phrase. All it means is this. We are living at a time when the church is no longer the theological or the, uh, the political, social, cultural center that it once was. In other words, the world will make decisions without ever running it by the church. And if you doubt that we are in a post-Christian era, then just do me a favor. Go and make an appeal to the board responsible for your kid's little league and ask them not to schedule anything on Sunday mornings. And, and then let me know how it turns out. That ship has sailed. But that's just a tiny, silly example. Do you realize that in every Christian era prior to this one, there was the pursuit of questions. 
What do we do about war and famine? What do we do about peace? What do we do about geopolitical um, shifts that will mean we may have to migrate? What will it mean economically? We ask questions about suffering and, and disease, and we ask questions about human ingenuity, human sexuality, about relationships, about politics. But in ages past, where do you go to get the answers? Well, in the patristic era, you went to the patriarchs, and they'll tell you the answer. During the pre-reform era, you go to the Pope, and the Pope tells you the answer. For the last 500 years, for we Protestants, you go to the Bible, and the Bible tells you the answer. But let me challenge you to do something. Go out and... Look! Right! FLC can't see this, but I just water dropped on you. Top that. Landed straight up. All right. What are we talking about? So the Bible, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're wondering where do we find authority, where do we find some mooring point, where do we find a lighthouse in the sea, then just do me a favor. Take your Bible and go someplace and, and say to someone, hey, I notice you're going through some things. Um, I know you're not a believer. I know you've rejected this, but the Bible says you ought to order your life this way. You know what they will say, right? So what? We are now entering in an era when the very things, the structures that have given us um, authority and direction and guidance in the greater world outside of these walls no longer mean the same that they once meant. It is a post-Christendom or post-Christian era. But can I just let you know a little secret? That could scare some people to death. That could threaten some people. Those facts could make some a little nervous, but it excites me to no end. I have more hope in my bones living at this time and in this era. I thank God that we live in this era where we get to see the next rummage sale and have something to say about what needs a sticker and what doesn't because I gotta tell you, there are some things happening in this great emergence that are good, good and one of the most powerful things happening among, especially among those who are far younger than me, is there is a resurgence of a passionate pursuit of the teachings of Jesus. A passionate pursuit of the teachings of Jesus. And you can check with Dan Kimball, or you can check with Brian McLaren or Rob Bell. You can talk to Doug Paget. You could talk to Phyllis Tickle. You could talk to Diana Butler Bass. You could talk to all the experts who study us and who track trends, and they will say one of the common elements among the faithful is there is a surging resurgence of a desire to move back to our original identity as followers of a radical named Jesus. And in following that radical with his revolutionary teachings, there may just be a way forward. Do you know that I meet a lot of people who think they're the followers of Jesus because of his teachings? I mean, you know, scores of people who would say, oh yeah, I'm an adherent to the, the teachings of Jesus because I go to church and I da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But beloved, do you know that going to church will no more make you a Christian than standing in your garage will make you an automobile? <laughs> when I'm talking about there is in this emergence, 
a radical, passionate fervor for the teachings of our Lord Jesus. I'm talking about the teachings that are raw and in your face and are inclined to get you in trouble. Don't forget where it took him. I'm talking about when he, his biggest sermon series was called The Kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, the only sermon he, te- he taught was about the, 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 the kingdom of God, the realm or the reign of God, the, the domain in which God exists. And Jesus consistently said, God is not, a, is not one who is located in one location or one time period, but God is in all locations and in all time periods. This is the way he spoke of the kingdom. He says, it's close, can you see it? Do you have the ears to hear it, the eyes to see it? He, in the teachings of Jesus, even suggested that those who were outside the religion, those who had no orthodox faith, could practice faith. One of my favorite conversations I had about a year or so ago was with a friend of mine who is not a Christian, and some of those are the best conversations, y'all. I love those raw intimate, vulnerable conversations more than any kind that we can have. And I saw him out here locally, and it was close to Easter. And he came up to me and said, okay, Sean, I got a question. It's getting close to Easter. So this resurrection thing. He said, is it like literally a resurrection or like a metaphor? To which I said, Yes. On the third day, he physically rose from the grave. God raised him up, and he was experienced, encountered by so many that they couldn't shut up about it. That's why we still talk about it. So yes, literally, but also metaphorically, because you know that thing down inside you that made you want to ask me that question? It's an inner aliveness in you. That's called resurrection. He looked at me and he said, wow, I think I just got chills. <laughs> the teachings of Jesus are raw. They're real. And I'm not talking about there is a, a surge of, of, of a new allegiance to the uh, infrastructure and the institution that carries the teachings of Jesus. I'm talking about the in-your-face teachings that will cause you to open up your life so wide that you welcome folks into your own journey that you never imagined you would welcome. I'm talking about the teachings of Jesus. And yeah, he said a bunch of other stuff too. He said, you know, if you got a bunch of stuff, and you see somebody who doesn't have anything, give them some of your stuff. And he said, if somebody's hungry, give them something to eat, take them something to drink. There are all those teachings. But all of them are summarized in the passage we read a moment ago because when a lawyer said, what's the most important thing? He said, the most important thing is love, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, everything that's in you, your soul, your mind, love your neighbor, love yourself. Jesus was then and is now calling all of us to a radical revolution of love. And despite what stays and what goes in this next rummage sale over the next hundred years, if you and I relentlessly pursue the teachings of Jesus, this revolution of love, 
then that will allow us to put the stickers on the things that need to be put stickers on. That allows us to have the rummage sale. That allows us to jettison the things that we were worried about jettison because we know that the one thing that remains is the love of Jesus Christ. And so if we are going to put some stickers on some things, and there's a long list of things that we could, what would those things be in your mind? Next week, I'm going to share a couple of those things with you as we continue in this rummage sale, as we dig deeper into what must remain for the church to live and what must be given away. Let's bow together and pray. Good and loving God, in this moment of reflection and study, Maybe for the first time in a long time, we stop to, to think about not just where we've been, but where is this thing going, Lord? The call to be the body of Christ. We recognize that you have called us to be alive in this world. But to be alive and to be real, to matter in this world, means that we have to follow your lead, that your Holy Spirit is what guides us. And as we pay attention to the shifting winds of culture and society all around us, show us, Lord, rather than being defensive, show us how to look within ourselves that we may assume a posture of grace and mercy and life so that from this point forward we are able to hand over a faith to our children and our children's children so that in a generation to come, when they stand on these steps again and sing as they did this morning, we are the people of the church, they won't be telling a lie. Show us today what you want from us, because our lives belong to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.